This is Coda Radio, episode 328, for October 5th, 2018. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Coda Radio, Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly talk show, taking a pragmatic look at the art and business of software development and its related technologies and, you might say, subjects. My name is Chris here in the beautiful Pacific Northwest, and joining us every single week is our host, the man who is established in a secret headquarters spying on the large corporations of Florida. It's Mr. Dominic. Hello, Mike. Hello, and I'm editing my Bash RC live, baby, baby. Oh yeah, oh yeah. Is this uh, this is the time to do it right now during the this intro? This is the right time. <laughs> this is the right time. It's the only time. I love it. I love it. There's been there's been many projects completed during a show. You never Absolutely. know. Sometimes you just get an inspiration. You might be in the middle of podcasting. Let's see. Hair.cs. Okay. We're together on a Friday edition of the show. A rare a rare treat because we often do the show earlier in the week. But it didn't work out. You and I were so passionate. We said, we got to do this. We got to get together. You were traveling like a maniac. How did all of that go? How did all your travel go? Did it all turn out okay? Always good. In two weeks, I'm going to Texas. Oh, really? Whereabouts right. in Texas? Uh, San Antonio. In a couple of weeks, let's see. I'm going to meet BSD, which I think Ooh. is uh, I think is the, uh, the 19th and the 20th or the 20th. I think maybe it's the 20th and 21st. Anyways, it's coming up in just a couple of weekends. It'll be a weekend thing, so... It might impact that Monday, but we'll figure that out. Yeah, Texas is a good time to go right now because it is getting gray and cold. Although you're in Florida, so what the hell do you know? Anyways, we've got a great yeah. show. Mike's been testing the testing, and we're going to talk about those testing results. Also, a little bit about automated build systems. And if we get to it, we have some extended hoopla. But why don't we start out with some feedback and follow-up, like we do to warm up here on the show. And this one I thought was a good one just to address. It's because it's been a while. And... I, this is from a listener in Russia. He says, hello, Chris and Mike. I'm a longtime listener of the show. Appreciate what you do. Uh, and I like getting the weekly insights, if not just the general topics, but the things around software development and its related technology. Now, JB did help me after five years of wanting to switch to finally become a happy C++ developer and double my income. So I have a short question that I'm hoping you'll answer. I've listened to the show for a long time, but I don't think I've ever heard the definition of what a dark matter developer is. Now, I never hear it, but I hear you mention it a lot, so I was hoping you would explain what it is. What do these mysterious devs actually do? He has a he has an idea, but he wanted to hear what is our definition when you toss around the dark matter devs. He says, I got a feeling that those are people working in corporations on narrow projects, never expected to leave their office, and the projects are generally intended for internal use only. That's, well, you got that in yeah, one. Yeah, yeah <laughs> that's okay. good right yeah. there. That's the, what we believe here. Our premise on the show is that is the vast majority of the software development industry is developers that are employed or contracted to work for a company that are building software for that company to use internally, either as tools to process something or for staff to interact with. And those developers generally don't get to uh, change and jump uh, <laughs> languages or toolkits or or any fad, right? They don't get to fad hop, I guess is what I'm trying to say. They uh, they tool away at a job for a long time, and it's a it's a respectable trade if you think about it, because it is there is a certain refining to that process. 
but they don't really get all of the glam, all of the fame and the glam and the glam and the glitz or whatever. You know what I'm trying to say? Like they don't get all the attention in the in the tech yeah. press. Yeah, they're they're often not working on let's say like the newest technologies. They're usually, you know, maintaining some god forbid access application for 15 years. Yeah, struggling with some technical debt and and they're generally not the people that the keynotes are uh are like directed at when Google or Microsoft yeah. goes up on stage. And you know, but what's funny is they're typically the customer base that's actually keeping those companies financed and buying their products and licensing their yep. software and using their services. <laughs> but they're targeting future customers. Uh, yeah, so that's essentially what the dark matter dev is. And it, it probably is a good idea that we define it every now and then, once every couple of three years or something. Every three years, whether we need it or not. So I, I had two items of follow-up with you, because you know how I like to stalk you. And I noticed, number one, it appears perhaps you got the Galago going. So congratulations, good job. Sir. Thank you, thank you. Is it the screen work? On. It's working. Like the actual. Uh, there, there's a there's a minor pink blotch on the screen, but it's very small, and it only appears when the background is dark. Um, and it just so happens to be on the right side of the screen, which means you know the way editors format code. I don't really care. Hmm. Okay. So it's usable. That's good, and it's decent hardware still. So all right. So the other follow up is uh, so I think I, I get it. I get the sense that uh, Buccaneer, or I guess no, I'm sorry, it's the Mad Botter Inc. Now I got to keep these things straight. I, I'm also got to remember that I'm part of Linux Academy. Like there's it's a Linux lot. Academy now. There's a That's lot right. going on, man. Uh, so the Mad Botter seems to be putting uh, some feelers out there for some new hires. I saw you tweet about that, and um, I noticed too that you were mentioning how some of the people that were responding were interpreting Linux command line experience as the subsystem, I think I'm getting this right, as experience with the subsystem on Windows. What's yeah. with this? Is this so, is this a younger type of applicant? Like, what's right, happening here? So I just filled my more senior developer position. So the remaining position that I'm uh, interviewing for is the uh, calling a customer champion. It's a QA kind of customer service type role. So these are more junior people looking to kind of break into the industry. Um, so QA when they're probably not dealing with a customer support issue. It kind of exactly, exactly. Uh, mostly, I'm interviewing young folks out of USF, which is a local. Uh, very you sound like such an old man when you say young folks. <laughs> I know. You know what, old man? You're just as bad. <laughs> <laughs> old guy radio. Yeah. And like, because I enjoy torturing junior people. I make them run Linux. Um, it's a good test of their hardiness. <laughs> it's, this is a test of your spirit, son. No, it's more because I want them to like know how to write scripts and not use wizards for everything. And more importantly, I know how to like give them a bash script that does something. So mm. helpful. And I, I've been asking on these interviews, so, you know, tell me about like, you know, scripting on a Linux environment. Do you, you know, Python is another very popular thing I'm hearing about. So oh, one yeah. thing is a lot, I'm, a lot of these folks aren't really doing bash scripting per se. They're writing their little uh, utility stuff in Python, but the, and this isn't all, but this is a surprising plurality of these young people. When they say, when I say Linux, I ask what distro and they say, well, what do you mean? I just use the subsystem. And my jaw dropped the first seven times I heard that. <laughs> oh. huh. I think the reason this is happening is because we have a very large Microsoft campus, like right here. And they are like 
basically like major sponsors of most of the tech events and the student stuffs and the hackathons mm. and all that good stuff. And I know they're very, very active on campus. So my assumption is that it's just proximity and Microsoft gives free Azure candy to kids like it's well, giving candy to kids. I have two thoughts on that. So it's funny because Joe just asked this question in the user era. I think it's 49 that I was just on, air.show slash 49, where I also went into detail about my whole medical thing, the whole trip to Texas and getting surgery. Um, <clears throat> but he said, is, is Windows 10 going to be the biggest competition for desktop Linux now? And the premise is, and I think it's a good one. Of course, we all argued with him, but the premise is that it's good enough to do some of this stuff and uh, where students in the past would have been spinning up a VM to do part of the class inside a VM. They're doing it now in the subsystem. The subsystem is replacing VMs and that keeps you closer to Windows. It, you know, you're not having to go through the Ubuntu installer and you're not seeing the Ubuntu desktop with the with their GNOME theme and uh, all. You know, there's no browser that's like inside the desktop environment. It's all just the command line sitting right on top of Windows 10. And um, he he made the he made the uh, his his position essentially was is that over time that negates the need when when you look at Chromebooks and you look at Windows 10 that negates the need for desktop Linux. And we all, of course, argued with it. But now here you are telling me the very thing that he was concerned about. Damn it. And it doesn't surprise me, to be honest, because it's it's a pain in the ass to uh, really, if you think about it, install some virtual software. Some is it. Uh, do you go with VirtualBox? Do you do you try to use like Windows 10 Pro and have Hyper-V? Is it a requirement of the class that you license something or are you trying to do something economical for the students? And the subsystem just solves all that. It's sort of sad, but... It's sort of, um, it's sort of. I think long term, it just sort of all works itself out in the wash because it, at the same time they're learning some skills on Bash. They're maybe learning uh, the differences between a, uh, the dir command and the ls command. So it's still a valuable experience that could be translated to physical Linux, full Linux installation down the road. So I wouldn't totally discount it, but it does to me seem to signal that maybe Joe was right about being concerned about a new trend. I always hate it. So, goes right. what's weird is another thing. I, you know, let's say four years ago, was seeing people come in for interviews, and almost everybody, I would say, what's your preferred environment? You know, Linux, Windows, or Mac? And like ninety percent would just say Mac. Mac, yeah. Um, I'm seeing almost like no MacBooks. That's got to be part and parts to your in part to your location, because I still see yeah. quite a bit of MacBooks out there. But. You know, like at Linux Academy, they have a choose-your-own OS policy, and initially people were choosing MacBooks, and it's it's transitioned to Linux machines, and now it's like, well, what do we get? Dells? Do we get ThinkPads? Like now, it's now there's confusion around all of that, uh, and I think it is there are like ebbs and flows. The Red Hat CEO this morning tweeted that tech is a style of fashion, not like in the Apple Watch iPhone style. But like in how things do come into fad and then they last for a while and then we swing to another fad. And he was making the case that, you know, the last swing was cloud. Everything's going to the cloud. We're all cloud. And now it's all now the conversation has swung to hybrid between physical and cloud is clearly the future. And now we're now that's the new fad for for server deployments. And the same thing is, I think, true with workstation operating systems and these different OSs get more competitive. You have Ubuntu coming back into GNOME, sending all of their fixes upstream, and building two really solid LTSs in a row. Actually, all of yeah. them. 
from 1204 to 1404 to 1604 and now 1804, they had their issues here and there. But in in, to, in totality, especially by their point one releases, they were really solid, rock solid LTSs. And so that's a lot of momentum. And I think it's caused some swing back the other direction when you also combine it with the availability of better hardware. But that, I think, also shifts by region. Depending on where you go, you have a much higher MacBook population. Like, so for, I'm almost done. By the time you go to, when you go to Southeast Linux Fest down there in Charlotte, North Carolina, they're all ThinkPads. Everybody that goes there, for the most part, except for the presenters, are on ThinkPads. It's, that's just sort of the culture in that area. That's a little weird. I thought the ThinkPad thing was like an old school sort of Linux beard thing. You know, I you know I just got a ThinkPad, right? I mean, you, I know you did. Yeah. That's why I did that. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's you know it, there is something to not having a metal machine. Um, so the MacBook that I had was metal, and the XPS 13. So my work machine was this MacBook uh, 20, the first Touch Bar edition I got when my other MacBook died for Final Cut. And you know, as I stopped editing video, I sort of used that MacBook less and less, and I I increased my usage of the XPS 13. I started traveling with the XPS 13, and it was a great little machine, but I was delicate with it. Not only did I had I busted it by by dropping it and the plastic had broken and it was sort of delicate in that way, but I also felt because it was metal and dentable and scratchable, I needed to be more careful with it. And so I would be very, very sort of delicate with it. But with the ThinkPad, I really don't have those concerns. It feels really much more like a workman's tool or a work lady's tool. Like it's it's something I throw in the bag. I've already put stickers all over it. Like I, you know, I, I didn't know if I, I could never could really violate the the aluminum of the XPS 13. But with the ThinkPads, it just looks like every other plastic ThinkPad. So I don't care, and I just I just you know decorate it the way I like, and now it feels personalized. There's something to your work tools being durable and not being these pieces what? of jewelry I, I i'm telling you there's something to it you know back, remember yeah, when I, apple used to make rubber macbooks <laughs> i do toilet? I, I, I wish they still did <laughs> yeah all right well moving on that's not what we're here to well actually in a way this is a good time to transition into talking about this particular problem so nominally we're going to be talking about building and qa and all of the integration processes there and you did a little more digging, I believe, into automated builds for iOS without a Mac, and it looks like you've uh, t collected some resources. I know we've talked uh, we talked a little bit about Mac and cloud in the past, but I'm I'm curious to see your thoughts on App Center and other services that are out there. Where are we at on this, Mr. Dominic? Ooh. Yeah, so I ended up, uh, you know, I'm I got that MacBook for my trip, but I'm going to be returning it because. I just, you know, don't want it. So, and I would like my money back. So, I ended up getting a tweet before the last show we did from a listener named Emily who suggested that I check out Mac and Cloud, which I did briefly look at, but I felt it was a little too much of a hassle. I also subsequently got a tweet, I believe from someone actually, an evangelist at Microsoft saying, hey, Dodo, you can totally do this in App Center. The catch is your first builds for iOS have to be done on a physical Mac. And then App Center can take it from there. Oh, really? That's, yeah, so that's, that's interesting. That is interesting because this scratches a few itches. One, like we didn't even mention it, but I'm currently on elementary at this at this very moment. Uh, Good for you. I think that is the desktop environment for you, especially Juno. I don't know. Are you using Juno? Or I'm using... on Juno. Yeah. Good. Good. Yeah. I really think that's 
they got good app. The apps that they have are really good and solid. It's a clean environment. I think it's gotten a really bad rap for trying to be a Mac clone. It's not that at all. It's just they're trying to make a great UI and a great environment. It's yeah, one of my favorites. UI, basically. Yeah. You, so, sorry, now that I put all out, now that I said all that, do you like it? <laughs> um, I do like it. I, um, you know, I don't know when it finally comes time to, like, upgrade to a new tower if I wouldn't just, like, I, I, it would probably be either elementary or pop. Um, and I think it would be if I buy a Dell tower, it will be elementary because I don't love stock Ubuntu at the moment, even though pop is very close to it. And if I buy an S76 one, I will be lazy and just keep pop. The thing about elementary OS is I just, I love its terminal. They have the best notification system on desktop Linux and they're building this really complete guide for developers to follow to create applications for the platform. Then they have the App Center where they have a monetized system where it's pay what you want so developers can actually get paid for creating these applications. And there's some neat ones in there that are unique and specific in a way. You can There's other ways to get them, but in a sense, if you want the complete experience, they're, they're unique to that distro. And it's so solid. They really take, the, they have this <clears throat> release approach where it's not date-based, it's open bug-based. And they just burn through all the issues until they have them sufficiently closed, and then that's when the next release gets cut. And I think that's why it's been so reliable for my son. He's He's been on it for almost three years now. The same install, my son on the same install, uh, doing updates, installing Minecraft software, and it has been rock solid for him. It And if you like GTK applications, which are gorgeous, it's a great way to run GTK applications on a desktop that is better architected than GNOME 3 Shell is. Anyways, that's my end of my pitch. I just think it's it's one I've been wanting you to try for a long time, but I just haven't been wanting... If you've been happy with Pop or Stock Ubuntu, I didn't want to push, you know, because you can go crazy hopping distros. Distro hopping. Well, I will say that I, my distro hopping days are probably done. Um, yeah, good. And I, th- and I think we are going to be in a situation of, as long as I'm, like, frogging around with this machine, it'll be elementary. And then whatever the... Don't call it a Mac Pro alternative uh, machine ends up being will be uh, will probably be either pop or or elementary. I can't see myself using stock Ubuntu at this point. Okay, so going back to Visual Studio App Center and code signing for iOS. So you you get it signed and built once on a Mac, and then from then on you use the App Center to do the deployments to the to the store and to, to actually build and sign it. Can you can you explain? So it's not this just doesn't make sense to me. Right, but it's not just deployment to the store either. You can also use the App Center to, uh, to how can I put this, to do hockey app or test flight deployments to, let's say, customers or testers or anything like that. Hmm. So, Which is kind of a big deal because it also can handle collecting the customer's UUID for their iPhones, which if you're using hockey app is a oh. tr- tremendous pain in the ass. Huh, this has got to be pretty enticing to you. Are you giving this serious consideration? Yeah, I'm giving it some thought. And the reason being, one thing I've been considering doing for a while now is automated testing out of GitLab. So basically, you would merge branch, mm. pull it somehow, create a binary, and run a bunch of automated UI tests and other kinds of just uh, basically you know, scripted huh. tests. Yeah, And that's always been something that's relatively easy on the web and incredibly annoying on mobile just because of the whole... Mike's machine ends up being the build machine. And if Mike is busy, he doesn't want to sit there and run tests. So, yeah, this is a, it's kind of a big change. One, because you don't need to lug around a MacBook. And 
I think even though the idea of just having a Mac mini somewhere hooked to a router was attractive, I think ultimately having this in the cloud is going to be more convenient. Yeah. Um, and the case of tests that I'm thinking of running are fairly easy to automate. Things like, are you missing assets? Um, are, are elements on the screen not lined up correctly? Um, things like that. Uh, obviously, crashers and, and your basic heartbeat tests. Um, but again, doing that manually is, is, is super time consuming. And I, I can already see the uh, snarky YouTube comments coming, you know, Mike discovers TDD. But uh, no, this is this is this is the stitching together of a of a new I hate to use the term, but new cloud based pipeline that uh, I mean, this is this is something Microsoft, I think, is just at the beginning of doing. We are what we are seeing today is going to be so more advanced by 2025 it's just going to it's going to be obvious by that point but if you look at how quick microsoft is moving on their integration with github i've never really seen this company move this fast just as an example if you go to docs.microsoft.com now the entire comment system has been replaced with github comments you sign in with your github account um, and then they open they have open issues and closed issues in the comment section they are integrating this stuff in a microsoft's pipeline very very quickly and there's going to be a clear future where it's it's all connected together very easily. And then they're, they're there now, but I mean, by 2025, it's this is going to be one of the tightest pipelines and developer resources out there. This is this is going to be great. And I could see why it'd be enticing now, even where they're just getting started. And here's the other crazy thing. And I, this wouldn't necessarily work for you because you don't want a Windows desktop. But this week, Microsoft also ac- uh, announced Surface All Access, which is... Twenty four ninety nine a month for a Surface, um, and it's it's so it's Surface as a service, and they're actually going to be I think probably looking at they're, that's how they're going to account for it as a service. So you get a book, you choose your favorite bundle. There's different bundles to pick from, and they, of course they will change the price. So the price can go up to one hundred and fifty dollars per month if you wanted to say get the Surface Studio iMac replacement. That'd be one hundred and fifty bucks a month, or if you wanted like the right. Surface laptop bundle, it's forty six bucks a month. Uh, but along with that, you get uh, Dell support for some reason, Dell preferred supports so like Dell's top class support, and you get a subscription to Office 365. And you could see how they could easily spin this out in a developer's program where you could also get access to Azure or certain aspects of Azure or access to a pipeline of some, of some particular use. This is, to me, the perfect solution if I was working in this ecosystem. I'm actually a pretty big fan of the iPhone upgrade program because the iPhone is just as useful as actually it's more useful than most of my computers. And so it's something that I'm interested in keeping up to date. And I also, I also am interested in getting a new camera because there's lots of uses for that. And so for me, it's actually pretty good as a subscription and my laptop hardware and your laptop hardware also tends to get replaced about once a year or for you even twice or three times a year or four times a year. And, <laughs> and so when you when you bundle these things with this top tier support warranty and they'll replace it if you damage it and you can get a new one when they release a new one and you get bundled access to some of the services you might be using already in the cloud, they've got a really competitive offering for developers who don't have a ton of capital, who can't drop $3,000 on high-end hardware but can afford $35 a month. Of course, a lot of people listening are going to go, oh my God, don't do that. That's You're, you're financing a laptop. It's depreciating every day. But for some people, yeah. that is an arrangement that works. And when, you, when they have the ability now 
to bring all of this stuff together, Azure and GitHub and Surface as a Surface, Surface as a Service, that's easy to say. That's a pretty competitive offering, especially since the Surface hardware is, from all accounts, pretty decent. It's going to be, uh, and Microsoft, I don't know, man, Microsoft is just at the starting gates right now. So, so not to jump back too far, but to our conversation about um, uh, the Windows subsystem for Linux, one of the more common things I'm seeing these uh, these students do is they're writing Python on Windows. Yeah, which just blows my mind. Yeah, no, yeah, it's a thing. It and like, yeah, it's it's creepy how good the iOS Apple development tools are from Microsoft. <laughs> Yeah, and I'm running them on Linux. That that is a funny thing when you like it's 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 worth just spending a moment with because it's not how things used to be. <laughs> so it is something to reflect on and go, wow, holy shit, this is really something. Like they really have moved so fast for a company their size. This is extremely nimble movement. It doesn't seem like it from the outside, but some of these things have been in development for years, like five year timelines, and uh, so they're moving. Wow. Well, so I guess this would probably be a good time to start talking about uh, QA in general, your testing of the testing, because uh, you've had some, let's say, on-again, off-again experiences in this area in the past. Yeah, so long-time listeners will know that I've drank and then thrown up the Kool-Aid on the automated testing more than once. Um, so this is going to be a unpopular, not, you know cool hip perspective on this problem. Oh, those are my favorite. I do not believe that there is actually a virtue in having 100% test coverage. Okay. Because it's just not that hard to test certain things with the power of vision. And I also don't believe, as some people have wrote lengthy blogs about, that you can basically eliminate human testers via automated testing. Oh, yeah. I also remember, Chris, let's talk about the late 90s for a moment, mm. in the early 2000s. There used to be entire teams of QA testers at companies. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And, yeah. Yeah. And now a team that builds an app is like two or three people, right? So it's... I would say in some cases, the QA was one of the large areas, not larger than support. But yeah. there were more QA testers than there were developers. That's for sure. Oh, for sure, right? And the, and the QA people like... It was a really formalized process. I don't know. I don't know yeah. how how deep you went into it, but they had like binders of QA scripts you had to follow. Yeah, and and the best ones there was usually someone there who was very persnickety about the following the process. We have to follow the process, and right. because I was there as PC support, if something was preventing the process from going in its order, it was no good, and that was a big deal. And this room I'm th I'm talking about for a company that had. I mean, three or four developers plus a contractor and maybe maybe two contractors. They had a dozen QA in in this one business that I was a contractor for for two years. And the entire time, the QA department was an area they kept staffed. It was a bit challenging to keep it staffed, though. That's for sure. A lot of turnover. Well, that was the thing, though, right? The QA department was basically the stepping stone to becoming a programmer or developer at a company. Yeah. Um, and this was, geez, that, that, that had been going on since the dawn of the industry, I think. I mean... Yeah, you Neither look back. At, yeah, you look back at projects and the way they're structured. There was generally a, just a, I think a huge, well, comparatively to now, uh, a huge commitment to QA that we that I guess to now just seems crazy. It seems like a huge staff cost that nobody would ever do. Well, that's the thing. 
I kind of think you do need QA. I have thought this for a long time, as we know. And I, again, get your YouTube comments ready. I actually question the wisdom of having developers be QA and having yourself rely completely, and I said completely, on automated, let's say, TDD testing. And we'll get into that because there are all different kinds of testing you could be doing uh, in terms of automated testing. Because I I would love to hear from anyone in the audience who, who works somewhere or, or has done a project themselves where it was never necessary to just like run the app or the whatever it is on, on an actual device and like physically walk through the different screens or different user flows. Um, regardless of how much automated testing you do sure. or don't have, right? Yeah. So, so the premise I'm rejecting is that I do not believe, when I, again, I do not believe 100% test coverage will necessarily pay for itself. So I have, okay, so let me see if I'm following you. Number one, it's sort of, it's hard to be your own editor. You know, you write up something and you have somebody else read it and they'll have tons of editing suggestions. So UI design is a lot like that. It's easy to overlook things that are just natural to you because you understand how it all works. So having somebody with a, a user's perspective and a clean, fresh perspective can, can catch things that would otherwise just have seemed obvious to you. So there's that aspect of it that I think you're trying to get at. But the other thing about it is <clears throat> 100% automated testing would really require dedicated time to build new testing settings and systems all the time. I mean, you think about how, how, how what, would, what it would require to be able to fully automate all of that. It would either be a massive amount of pre-planning and an incredible amount of organization required to do it right, or it'd have to be an evolving thing that you're constantly adjusting and changing, which would be a big attention and time suck. So it seems like there's a balance there that you're saying maybe could be struck that that it is worth having automated testing, but there is a balance where you will become consumed by managing the automated testing system. Am I following? Yeah, I, I would also argue that it's not just the cost of automating the test system. There's an economic thing where, you know, QA testers are generally junior and, and you know, inexpensive. And like intermediate to senior devs are generally going to be your highest cost which means you're probably going to be very incentivized to try to bill that time if you're in a type of business like I am. Okay. I'm not convinced, right? So that's, I'm not convinced that that is actually providing real value. Again, I'm not convinced that 100% coverage. I am not asserting that automated tests don't make sense at all. In fact, I think they do make sense. I just don't think being religious about 100% coverage is ultimately worthwhile um yeah i'm not gonna argue that i agree yeah well it's it's it, it is kind of the default position i you know i've been dipping my my little toe back into this pool and there's some very strange like binary thing that's happening you know my question to people has been okay so like how much automated testing are you doing like we're doing some but you know we're not like you know we're not like writing tests to make sure the title of the the page in ios is correct right because we can just look. And what I'm getting, uh, particularly in like uh, developer forms, is just you're not doing testing unless you have 100% coverage. Hmm. Which seems, in, that's like saying you're not using Linux unless you're completely FOS or GPL. Yeah, it's right? almost like getting it's, to a religious degree. It's a belief right. system. You it's will test. Bit. And then there's, you know, if, if those are the RMSs, there's the 
I don't know how you go past RMS, but there's the people who say you have to write your test first. Right. right. Which sounds like complete madness to me. You know, I ha- I have been involved in a couple of conversations where the room of people that were building the thing, all of them seemed to have collective buy-in on the idea that they could push it through a completely automated test system, a 100% automated test. And it, I never saw it completely work. It's funny, uh, F-R-R-O-L in the chat room says uh, it's the 80-20 rule. 80% of use comes from 20% of the test. And I would say that was the experience I walked away from, mainly from 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 one particular group where I was involved in the conversation where I saw them concoct the idea. But I've also observed it from several, from actually from several open source projects as well as clients, now that I think about it, where this mentality has crept in and generally seems to have just become a never-ending quest. <laughs> and I really, in right. my personal experience, it was about 20% of the test, and they were the obvious ones that, of course, you'd want to check for, watch for regressions, make sure the damn thing doesn't crash, <laughs> that kind of stuff. Well, it's like anything, like, the way I've taken it so far is, like, your mission-critical business logic, which in the type of software I tend to be writing now, is, like, transmitting data, doing calculation, uh, doing conversions from, like, annoyingly small binary formats from the 80s. But that's all stuff that's easy to test because you can have a test script that, like, has a known input that you know what the output should be and just simply, you know, write a test that, you know, puts the input in and make sure you get the correct output. Um, but anything, I could give you a great example. I, I was talking to someone who who was, like, testing CSS, which not only did I think was not possible seems kind of crazy because how do you actually accomplish that how do robots pick music i that you know like it's a it's a it's a it's a design thing it's a it's a look and feel thing yeah and the answer to this question by the way is he went through extraordinary efforts to make that happen Hmm. but and even then i would i would argue and the argument i did make to him was that i think your whole setup here is going to be super fragile Right. Um, like, what happens if a browser, uh, let's not call it Chrome, decides they want to change something? Then do all your tests immediately fail? And his answer was probably. Yeah. 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 Okay. And then and then back to work. Um, you know that that is exactly the thing. Is you, it's you you it's a it's a rat race. What's the what's the expression? You're you're chasing the you're following the leader constantly with that with that kind of that kind of testing. I strongly believe, and I should save this for a predictions episode, but I strongly believe when I was talking about Microsoft, now they're just getting started. This is an area that they're going to expand on. And it's going to be one of those things that when you're all in and you're all connected up to their stuff, it's going to be extremely enticing to use because they'll automate a ton of this stuff. This is the next big area. I have heard a couple of um, open source projects that are thinking about building a service like this that, uh, is a full QA platform, and there's a, there are there are ones out there, but if a company like Microsoft could bring it all together with Azure and the ability to spin up virtual machines and t- test all kinds of applications from desktop applications all the way up to remote services, and it they had the full range, they could take it right from GitHub, they could build it, they could test it, and then they could go to the App Center and they could create the builds for iOS for you. The whole pipeline is there. 
there's just a few pieces they need to do some of the additional testing and to, to really make it easy to build those tests for the developers to make that super accessible. There has to be work done there. But you know that's got to be a direction they're going to go in. So maybe this is my preemptive 2019, end of 2019, 2020 prediction. Yeah, I would even piggyback on that. You know, now that I'm exploring this again for mobile apps, there is like a very common set of tests I would argue that you need for just about every iOS and Android app if you're going to do this. Yeah. Why can't when I load up a built app center, Microsoft just simply say, hey, we have this suite of tests that we right. recommend you let us run. And don't worry, you don't have to do anything. You know, so last week, Google announced that when you deploy a container on Google Cloud, <clears throat> any kind of like Docker container or anything like that, their system will now begin to analyze the system files and look at it to make sure there's no like Monero crypto miner in there. They're initiating a set of QA checks already for deployments on Google Cloud. And there's there are, if you think about it, behind the scenes, they're already doing tons of QA stuff when you spin up a machine, scripts that check to make sure services available. It is just going to be an expansion of that to a degree. Like internally for them, they probably already have infrastructure they can build on to make these services possible. And that's exactly, even if it just starts at, does it crash? Does the UI load? Could they perhaps maybe even simulate network conditions, create a simulated cellular network, create simulated degradation and packet loss? I think they could. And they could probably do it very simply compared to what you have to do to try to simulate that same thing on actual hardware, of course. I guess they'd be in a simulator. Anyways, I'm getting ahead of myself, but I think it's obvious where they're going to go. And and I, it's going to be really interesting to see if that happens. How does the developer market react? And how much are they willing to shift to a Microsoft-based tool chain? And maybe they're like you, and they're doing that from Linux, or they're doing it from Windows 10, or maybe even a Mac, or God forbid, a Chromebook. And, uh, oh, no, no, don't, don't do that. Microsoft's, That's not I, and Microsoft's back, that acquisition of GitHub was just, you think about it, was pretty clever. Yeah, and also a little scary, but yeah. Yep, yep, it's going to be, you know what else is, okay, so just like off the top of your head, you got to answer quick, don't think about it, so get ready. What company is scarier, Microsoft or Amazon? Amazon. Yeah, 100%, right? Like 100%. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I would rather like put all my stuff on Microsoft. Yeah. yeah, oh, for sure. Yeah, when it comes to like data storage and stuff. So well, I know what Microsoft wants, right? Yeah. I... I have been trying to make a case for a while on the on show, and I don't think I've gotten a lot of traction, but I'm going to bring it up one more time. I think there is gold in them there hills of the Echo, and the the different types of use cases now for the Echo, I think, expand the options for developers to create skills that eventually can be monetized. Uh, and this is not a commercial. I actually have really kind of stopped using. I have one here in the studio, but I've kind of stopped using... Um, echo tubes so i'm not i'm not here to sell i this is just my personal opinion uh they just launched i think a couple of weeks ago a dozen different types of echoes you've all heard about the microwave one there's even the uh billy the bass that that rubber bass that sings on the wall they've even made no they are you kidding me 100 percent serious there's now an echo in that thing yeah they've made an oh echo my god and the thing like that, the wor worst two products together <laughs> and the lips move with the voice of the bass, yeah, they've uh, they've done that. But they've also done a couple other really neat ones, including a much better video version one, but one that's built into a clock, like a wall clock. I think that's pretty clever. And they're also now testing one that goes in the car, which I've experimented with back when I just I just brought a MiFi and a device with me, and I just tried to have the Echo in the car just to see what that'd be like. <clears throat> and I think 
they are going to just hit this harder than Google or Apple can. Because this is Amazon putting a store in your home and it ties in with the security products that they've also announced. So all the devices work together. The echoes go into monitoring mode when, when, you, when you set your house alarm. And of course, they can tie it in with deliveries and down the road, they'll tie it in with other services that they launch like groceries. So the grocery delivery will come and the system will recognize them. This is a massive importance for Amazon, way beyond anything that Apple or Google can appreciate. Google obviously is a close number two with search and all the services that voice commands tie in with, obviously. But I think for Amazon, this is better than opening a store in every town. This is opening a store in every home. And I, I watch now as they continue to expand their developer monetization program, where if you get a successful skill, they're watching and they're starting to cut people checks. That's not a sustainable system, but I think that is an indicator that Amazon intends for this to be a way for people to make money. And until all of the pieces are in place, writing checks is how they're doing it. There are other ways like tying in with services. It's a great way to sell services, especially if you have uh, already if you're already creating like audio content that uh, would work really well on the Echo. So there's other ways to monetize, but I feel like there are gold in their hills and for for Amazon they're expanding this thing and it just is just very competitively. They've announced a bunch of different devices. Did I did I did I get did I reach you at all with that pitch? <laughs> I mean, you reach me with the pitch every time, but then there's the problem of you only get paid if Uncle Jeff decides to send you a check. Well, it's not necessarily like uh I'd be willing to pay to have somebody create a really comprehensive skill for Jupiter Broadcasting. Like there you could come to me with a certain like quote and I, you know, I'd be like, okay, that's what we're talking about, actually. Like, so there, like, there's, there's several ways to monetize this. If you look at all of the podcasts that are out there, all of the radio stations, everybody wants you to be able to call up uh, their thing on a, on a skill. There's even an angle for, for, for you with the Mad Botter. You could have, you could have Mad Botter tips and things like that that are pre-recorded sessions that you've done, maybe 15, 20 MP3 files that sit on a droplet, and then when somebody says. Hey, Echo, give me a Mad Botter tip. It plays one of your tips. I mean, just, you know, obviously that'd be a weird example, but there is, I think there's more use cases than people realize because not a lot of people have these. And once you get them, you realize there's a lot of potential. All right. It's actually not the worst idea ever. <laughs> you know, I mean, there's a lot of businesses that would, like, I, th I could even see Linux Academy would want something like this, like a, like a, you know, a Linux Academy educational tip. Like there's a lot of use cases here. Wait, I've got it. Hey, Big Mouth Billy Bass. Yeah. yeah. Play Jupiter Broadcast. Oh, play uh, Linux Academy. Yeah. See, I did it again. No, no. It, uh, the broadcasts are still labeled as Jupiter Broadcast. Now, so, I don't know what we'll do there. Eventually, I might change it. It seems like Linux Academy is a stronger brand with larger industry recognition. But the podcast could be like the premium podcasts it's from Linux brand, Academy. Baby. Yeah. We're it's a premium a brand. We're, pre yeah. I mean... <sighs> I really want to believe in it, right? This is a, okay, like, so I have to confess, I have written an Alexa skill. And because Uncle Jeff makes it so easy to just automatically create a skill with AWS Lambda, it is really, really easy to get sucked back into that AWS ecosystem. Yes, oh, for sure, yeah. Like, it's shocking. Like, what they have done is... I could make a skill. I could make a skill with my son. Yeah. Like you can sit down and they have a lot of different systems now that make it like click and drag even. 
Yeah. I mean, I did it before that when you had to like code it in like Node, but you could, you didn't have to care, right? You could just do it in a Lambda and just basically write your functions that respond to certain things. Um, And you have to have like a default, you know, sorry, I don't understand you kind of function. I, I just don't know. See, I guess I don't know other than like making skills for other people. Yeah. Um, I, I think, in, I think in your space, content creation, particularly audio content, it, it's awesome. Right. I think that makes a ton of sense, but how far could, how, how much would a different kind of business really be willing to invest in an Alexa skill? Yeah. You know, it's, I think the, that's funny. I think uh, FROL in the chat room nailed it is this is what I've been feeling is where my angst on this comes from is if developers don't start making these things better, I don't think they're taking off. I mean, more than they really have. But he writes in the chat room, he says, are those tubes like tablets several years ago, promising but not flying? Well, I'm still, yeah. I kind of feel like, I give give the HomePod uh, a a special mention here because it went from really basic. Of course you will. Of course I did. It went from really basic. In fact, in its core, it is still very basic. But holy hell, do shortcuts work with the HomePod? Holy hell, man. Like, I, I, you know, I'm listening to a show all the way home. I get home. I walk in the RV. I say, hey, HomePod, resume Overcast. And the things were never on the same network. They were never talking until I obviously got home. And it just, on the HomePod now, it just immediately resumes playing my podcast exactly where I was, now on the nice audio of the HomePod. I, I, all I had to do was turn that macro, or I'm sorry, shortcut, on on my iPhone some point a couple of days ago, and that crap just works. So now I'm, I've got, okay, okay, you ready for this? This is this is some real crap here. This is so. Do I take great. a drink before you tell me yeah, this? Or? Yeah, because you're right. gonna <clears throat> now. This Greg was vodka today. This is not as applicable to you because your home does not go down the road, but you, this would work well if you had your phone in your car. But this is particularly applicable to me because we go down the road and we actually listen to our music on the HomePod because it's louder than the RV's built-in stereo system, which is not wait, that how, wait, what do you do? When we're driving the RV, we have okay. the HomePod plugged in still. We have we have electricity in the RV when we're driving. Sure, sure, sure. And we actually listen to our music and our podcasts on the HomePod because it's louder than the RV's stereo system. So th- I, I mentioned this just for context, so you'll understand why this skill is pretty important. So this is a shortcut that I have. I was It wasn't my idea, but I, I definitely built it. So if I say, hey, HomePod, I'm getting pulled over. It pauses the music or the podcast. It turns on Do Not Disturb on all of my iOS devices. It turns off their brightness. On my phone, it gets the current location. It sends that to my fiance, Hadia, and it tells her, <clears throat> I'm currently getting pulled over. This is my current location. While my screen is off on my iPhone, it turns on the front-facing camera in high-quality right. mode, saves that to a photo album, and also then sends it to me in a message when everything's done. And then when I tell it everything's done and we're over, it takes me out of Do Not Disturb mode, turns my brightness back on, and it saves uh, that video that it recorded to iCloud and Dropbox. I'm, so the whole pod went from really basic yeah. to now I can do some super fancy stuff. And that same no, command that. works on my iPhone, too, so I can use it while I'm driving in the car. So, you know. I, I'm amazed there's not a commercial with that feature. Because that <laughs> actually, no, seriously, that, I was completely unaware it could control your other devices like that. That's, now, is that a third-party developer, or is that an integrated? That's a shortcut. It's a shortcut, and you just have to have 
So it has to be a setting that you can change via iCloud. Um, yeah, and it's yeah. pretty cool. And it's it's uh, you can f if you search for it in the shortcuts gallery. There's one that I use as a template. It's something. It's called Police. <clears throat> so I changed mine to I'm getting pulled over because that's the command I just that stuck in my head because that's what I'm thinking when I'm getting pulled over, right? <laughs> Shit, I'm getting yeah. Yeah, What else are you gonna think? And just yeah. even having it silence and turn off screen brightness and all that's really cool. And so also the cop doesn't think you're like texting while driving. That's right. Um, and so I, I think these personal assistants shouldn't be called personal assistants because I don't know what the hell is personal about them. It really drives me crazy that you can't. I think there's a feature that would put an echo on every single business person's desk. Every desk in the United States would have an echo on it if they could come up with a couple of real actual personal assistance features. If when you and I need to reschedule the show, I could say, hey, Echo, schedule a recording with Mike on, on Thursday or Friday. And then it would never talk to you. It would never bother you. It would never send you a message. It would contact your Echo or some intermediary API, some service. It would check your calendar. It would see what time you have available and match it up with the time that I have available. And it would set a mutual meeting, then notify us. And maybe you, that notification would come via the Echo or, or something that shows up on your phone or just a regular old calendar invite. And it would be done. And we wouldn't have to have this back and forth in Slack. It would all just happen because these personal assistants did that. And there's a lot of stuff like that. Like, you, why can't I ask this thing to send a grocery list somewhere? You can create lists, but then you have to open up another app. Like, they're they're not personal assistants. They're automation devices. And if you uh, think of not, them as yeah. that, then I think they're a little more useful. So this is where I think the problem is, right? Like, so if I wanted to develop some cool automation software for just let's just say you know the echo right the pro or in i would definitely do it specifically for big mouth billy bass though i'm yeah. saying that because of all these stupid walled gardens like these stupid barriers to like i am completely sure that there's all kinds of ways that integrating with the homepod sucks if you are not an i like a native ios app yeah and yeah, perhaps my, apple like all that stuff yeah. doesn't work if my phone's not on the LAN. right so it would be great. Let's just, because the ideal architecture would probably be you write some software that runs on a server. Could be a DO droplet. You then have these different endpoints. One could be for, you know, assistants such as uh, Siri and uh, Echo. The other could be just like almost, almost like how the Android instant apps kind of work, which is like renders down a page. Hell, it could just be a web page for mobile devices. And I mean, this is how Slack bots and bots in general work. And the other would be just a, a JSON endpoint for, uh, you know, your Slacks, your Microsoft Teams, mm -hmm. chats. Yeah. But Apple won't allow it. Google has their own hangups about Google Assistant. Although I, I think it's funny that no one who talks about this stuff really talks about Google Assistant too much, which is interesting to me. Yeah. Um, and Amazon, I think, is actually the most flexible for developers here. Yes. But no one want with good reason. None of the other companies want to be in bed with Jeff Bezos. Hmm. I hear he's a selfish lover. <laughs> so I like I love it. I love the use case you gave is great. Like that is my ideal. I could just say, you know, hey Java Duke, and if you get the reference, you're old. Hmm. Uh, go, I don't know. Tell what what happens all the time, right? I'm coming back from Orlando or something. And I'm stuck on I four. Just the same case, right? Mm -hmm. I tell Chris I'm going to be twenty minutes late. You, but, that can be a shortcut now. You know that that is the if, thing is if you're on iOS. If I have a native iOS app, yes. app, if I have a HomePod, yep. 
you're you're asking a lot of buy-in. I know. Uh, yeah. I know. And 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 the thing is, is at different times, not of it's not necessarily the most competitive. You know, like tech, def without question, the Echo can do more, especially mm-hmm. when you cons- consider the skills in the ecosystem. Um, and so, in, in a lot of ways, Google Assistant is better at contextual conversations than any of the assistants are, and it, in a way, Nothing can works do with it. Yeah. Yeah. I. I yeah. It's yeah. to me. It's just either. I, I think it's either. I don't know. It feels like they're almost going to be successful just because they play music and you can tell them to skip songs and turn things up and down. Like that is the minimum viable product of all of these speakers. And because the costs are coming down, they're all just getting smart anyways. And so this ecosystem is sort of building on the momentum of people wanting decent sounding speakers that they can control easily. And okay, if I can set a timer, that's kind of handy too while I'm cooking. Like that's the momentum that these things are running on. Not all of their fancy AI and assistance stuff, but we will reach a point where they're just ambient. They're everywhere. I mean, if you think about a household that has a couple of uh, iOS devices, an iPad, an iPhone, and a watch or a HomePod, that's a lot of Siri mics everywhere in the house. If you think about a place that has a couple of Echo Dots, it's a lot of Alexa mics. Cancel. Sorry. That's a lot of Echo Dots. Dream come true. It really is. Ooh, yeah. And so then, then there is all of a sudden, by the very nature, a market, and over time that market will start to get more sophisticated. I think, I think, I think. I don't know. We'll see. It's they seem to be selling a crap ton of them. All, all three: Amazon, Google, and and uh, and uh, Apple. But the only one that doesn't seem to be selling that super well that I've seen is the Cortana one. But even Microsoft's in the game. That's the one nobody ever talks about. Uh, Microsoft is actually uh, integrating Cortana on the Xbox with Alexa. Yeah, I, 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 that's actually, I don't know if you're joking, but that is actually something they're doing is you can... No, I'm not joking. Yeah, yeah, no. no. <laughs> so they, yeah. That's so weird. All right. Well, we I know people hate it when we talk LadyTube, so we should probably wrap it up there. But I just still think it's, you look at the last couple of weeks, uh, and now with iOS 12 and the HomePod, you have, you have some incredible capabilities all of a sudden overnight that the HomePod could do. And uh, Google Assistant is going to be calling people and scheduling. You know, if anybody's going to get there, it's going to be Google with that scheduling thing that I want. It's going to be over yeah. the phone, though. It's going to call people and be a robot talking to them and just get stuff scheduled that way. <laughs> Hello, Dave. I would like a dinner reservation. <laughs> yeah. Well, Mr. Dominic, is there anything you want to mention or plug or any links to send people to before we get out of here? Uh, go check out themadbotter.com. And as always, if you want to run some C-sharp on Linux, I'm your man. <laughs> there you go. That feels dirty every time. I don't know, man. It's going to get more and more popular, more and more in demand. All right. Well, we'll wrap it up there. I'm at Chris LAS. Grab the links we talked to about those kinds of things at coder.show also our contact page we want your emails your questions even your corrections coder.show slash contact that's the official place to get our attention and then there's that subreddit coderadio.reddit.com thanks so much for tuning into this week's episode of the coder radio program and we'll see you right back here next week